What's up, world? I'm your host, Angelica Beener, and this is Milestones, a podcast where I'm joined by a special guest each episode to discuss landmark music that is celebrating a milestone year. It's Black Music Month, and I thought it'd be really cool to throw back to my very first Milestones episode, never before released here at WBGO Studios until now. It's one of my favorites, and I'd love for you to check it out with me. But one quick note, if you want to say hey in person, catch me next Tuesday, June 13th, at Mutual Mentorship for Musicians Celebration at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. I'll be presenting their Lifetime Achievement Award honoring pianist-composer Michelle Rosewoman and the world premiere film screenings of M3's fifth cohort. So, if you want to support women and non-binary musicians and you love film and music, join us on June 13th. You can go to www.tinyurl.com forward slash June 13 M3 celebration for tickets. Now, back to today's episode. This episode's guest is a brilliant musician and multi-instrumentalist, a prolific composer, one of my favorites. He is a two-time Grammy-nominated saxophonist and producer, and his latest album, The Universe's Wildest Dream, with his Twilight band along with special guests, is, quote, an eclectic Afrofuturistic soundtrack geared toward raising awareness of the miraculous planet Earth through Pan-African aesthetics, bringing together many genres of Black music. I mean, we can't set off Black Music Month any better than that here at Milestones. It's available everywhere. I'm speaking of none other than Marcus Strickland. On this episode, we delve into John Coltrane's popular hit, My Favorite Thing. We also get into an in-depth education about the soprano saxophone, the true art of production, and why McCoy Tyner deserves all the praise in the world. Let's get into it, y'all. He is Marcus Strickland. Marcus, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. What an intro. <laughs> that made me feel kind of good. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, you know, it, it's all apropos. It's honest. It's, it is what it is, brother. <laughs> thank you so much. And speaking of milestones, this is uh, a milestone year for you. Are you aware? I'm not really sure. <laughs> what's, the, what's the milestone of this? <laughs> I, I said, you know what? I think I, I'm going to quiz Marcus and see if he knows what milestone <laughs> year this is for him. So this year, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, you crossed the 20 year mark of your debut album at last. Wow, I don't think I want to know that house. <laughs> <laughs> Little marker in time, though. <laughs> Isn't that yeah, something? Can you delete that part? <laughs> no, I'm joking. That's dope. That's the 20th year? 20 years, wow. yeah. yeah. 2001, yeah. 21. Wow. Just like that. Now, I don't know what, what month it was released, but it's definitely the 20th yeah, year. I have no idea what month, but yeah, that's dope. Two what? decades. <laughs> how so? How does that feel? Um, wow, it feels like time has just passed so so fast, and uh, so much has happened since then. And uh, I can I can look back and 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 really be proud of the you know the journey that has taken place since then. You know, uh, every everybody on that record has has done amazing things. 
uh, solo and and also as sidemen and and uh, and we've you've just really come a long way. So uh, yeah, and and we made such great music together. The the chemistry and everything uh, between us, uh, you know, it's just so many memories that come up every time I listen to that record. I'm like, wow, you know, I remember being in the uh, the hallway of of New School just with my friends and just listen to the record over and over and over and over again because it was our first time releasing uh you know an official recording <laughs> right yeah that's the thing you know with, mm -hmm. with brotherhood like you said mm -hmm. that particular band and the members of the band that was some mm -hmm. of your earliest if not the first time hearing yourself mm -hmm. on a recorded studio album yeah and yeah. uh and that's that's why we called that that record at last is because uh uh what what you're seeing there is the accumulation of ever since we started on our instruments and listening to music uh cognizant you know of who's on the on the records like ever since those those formative years leading up to the the year that we actually recorded that you know it it felt like a long journey to then and so that, that's the thing, because we are here to talk about a release that came out 60 years ago next month. March will mm -hmm. be 60 years mm -hmm. uh, before this album that was life-changing for both of us, I'm sure. And that is Definitely. John Coltrane's My Favorite Things. And yes. what I did not know prior to you know, asking you if you'd be willing to talk about this record with me was that it has a real personal meaning for you outside of just, you know, it being a killing album. So th mm -hmm. this, this is, so can you talk to me a little bit about just how you were introduced to this album? Oh, definitely. Um, so the, the great history of this, this record with me is first of all, uh, there's a vinyl uh, that's called the best of John Coltrane. Uh, I love the the cover. It's a it's a dope picture of Coltrane in a very solemn uh, pose, and uh, it has my favorite things on there. It's got Naima, Central Park West, Giant Steps. Uh, you know, it's all on that record. And that vinyl is a vinyl that my dad would play. He would rock that all the time, all the time, even before we were born. Um, when we were still in the womb, he would rock my favorite things from this vinyl into the womb, <laughs> put the womb to the speaker. And uh, our farm mom, she had all these sound waves going through her. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, the, I, I really appreciate him doing that. I have I have no doubt that it affected us in some kind of way to to hear things while we were in those very formative years. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, cycles and everything. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we we used to rock in our little rocking chairs to this record. Um, you know, when we were little tiny babies, and and then as toddlers, we would, you know, uh, we would run our cars back and forth, a little Hot Wheels and everything back and forth to the to the music while we're in the uh, the car. We had Jerry curl and eat the the hole in the back of the seat. Uh -huh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, this record has traveled so many uh, years with us. And um, by the time we were 11, that's 
that's when I first really became cognizant of what I was listening to all those time, all those years. Because uh, mm. we, we came back from band class, my brother announced that he uh, he's he picked drums as his instrument. I announced that I picked saxophone, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad got very excited. He was like, "Wow, you guys want to play instruments on you saxophone and drums? That's very complimentary." It's like. Uh, I gotta show you who my favorite saxophonists and drummer are. It's uh, John Coltrane and Elvin Jones. And he said, I've been playing this record the whole time for you guys. He took it out and he played it for us. And it was like listening to it uh, with a whole different uh, pair of ears, a whole different perspective, because we were finally cognizant of what was going on. It's like, that's a saxophone playing the melody. That's those are drums in the background providing all that rhythm. And my dad was breaking down all kinds of things about the recording. Um, it's like, look, do you recognize that song? You're like, yeah. You know, it's like, that's from a movie called The Sound of Music. It was like, oh, dope. Yeah, yeah. I remember them singing about their favorite things. It was like, yeah, John Coltrane does this a lot. He'll take a, a very famous song and do his own version of it and see how he's playing the melody different every single time that's called improvisation and uh then he went to elvin he was like see elvin you see the snare drum and the cymbals like the pattern that he's playing between that those are called triplets and that's a very important rhythm and he broke that down to my brother they would do all kind of uh, uh rudiments and stuff like that you know is this recording became the holy grail for us. Wow. Uh, wow. So was your dad, is your, is your dad, or was he a, a, a musician? I, I never, I, I know uh, his profession by, by day, mm -hmm. you know, but, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, he sounds like he's got an incredible ear for, for starters. Oh yeah, definitely. He was, uh, uh, since the age of eight, he was a percussionist and, uh, and actually through college, he was, uh, playing percussion. He was the principal uh, percussionist in the section, actually, for the, um, I think it's the the Fort Lauderdale um, or maybe the Miami Beach uh, Symphony Orchestra. Uh, he was the principal, what? you know, heads, you know, snare and everything. He had them rudiments crispy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he also played the kit and um, we heard him play occasionally on the drum set uh, for this like neighborhood uh barbecue thing <laughs> that they would do in 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 our neighborhood and uh and it was a neighborhood called la mirage i wonder if it's still around in miami um but uh you know we we remember seeing our dad playing the, the drum the drums and we were like wow you know i didn't know he did this because his trade uh by day was a, a lawyer he was a lawyer right and uh uh you know he's now retired but like yeah, he's always been an avid music fan, and also he was the designated DJ for parties at University of Miami. He, he had an incredible uh, uh, crate of, of records, you know. I remember the cover for the Best of John Coltrane, from which he would play My Favorite Things all the time. And I remember the, the album cover for uh, Talking Book, um, Stevie oh, Wonder. Oh, man. Yeah, and uh, it's it's such a, an incredible milestone of my uh, childhood to see that cover, uh, in particular talking book. So I, I hang it, I hung it on the wall in my room because it's, you know, there's very incredible memories 
you know, coming from that that image, that imagery, the braids and everything, him laying on the grass and the brown, the the earthy colors. Yeah, the braille. Braille on the record. Yeah. I remember as a kid running my finger across the, uh-huh. the bumps, as I would call it. Yeah. The <laughs> I thought that was so mm-hmm. cool. And even yeah. for me, you know, um, it's so funny because Coltrane was also what was playing when I was in the womb, you know, uh, but it was the Coltrane and Duke Ellington album. Oh, so, <laughs> uh, similarly, I came out feeling mm. like I knew, feeling akin to or a soul tie or some type mm-hmm. of kindred spirit to, and I still feel that to Coltrane. It's, it's a weird yes. thing, but I mm-hmm. feel, you know, no one can tell me that that's not my sold relative spirit guide something i feel like mm-hmm. there's some type of a, a soul tie and you know definitely. for me it was like definitely the ballads record that was played mm-hmm. all the time and the the again the the duke and train album mm-hmm. the giant steps and it wasn't until i was maybe 10 or 11 years old that I really got into my favorite things. And it was it was mm-hmm. not my mom who was playing it, my mother or dad, but it was my brother. And I just remember mm-hmm. that blue cover. It's similar to that blue oh, yeah. in your background, mm-hmm. that beautiful mm-hmm. sort of vintage cookie monster blue, you know, <laughs> yeah. with the, the uh, red. Yeah. yeah, with the big- Eve's Klein Blue. Yeah, that's the name of the Oh, what is I the have. name of it? Eve's, Eve's Klein. Eve's Klein Blue. That yeah. that's a vibe. It is such yeah. a vibe, and that's yeah, how really I is. was, you know, introduced to that mm-hmm. record all those years ago, um, with the with the red lettering and him mm-hmm. standing there with the with the soprano saxophone, and it, it wasn't like this crisp, clean graphic. It looked kind of, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. But that added kinda... <laughs> to the to the mystique of the whole. Yeah. Thing. It was like, what is this record about? That's how that's mm-hmm. how it it felt. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, this record was recorded in October of 1960, released in 1961. And the group that's on this record, which is Train, McCoy, is Steve Davis and Elvin Jones. And they mm-hmm. recorded over maybe a week's time or so, they recorded all the material from this record, um, the Coltrane plays the blues record and I believe Coltrane sound. And they recorded this record in like two days or, or, mm-hmm. or some, something crazy like that. And yeah. I feel like, and tell me if you agree or disagree, but I feel like, I mean, everybody knows giant steps. Everybody loves giant steps, but yeah. I feel like the Atlantic years when we talk about train kind of get, swept under the rug a little bit because it's like you know you got the prestige recordings and it's all about Mm -hmm. that and then of course the impulse recordings but there's this Mm -hmm. bridge between that is so much more than just a bridge um these atlantic recordings for me are really really special like what 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 do you feel about that period of coltrane i feel like coltrane's sound was in a, a a very interesting stage at that point. Um, it was extremely, uh, it was extremely bright, and it was very crisp. And I could tell that he was really, really deep in the shit. Like there's a certain 
of vibrancy to to a saxophonist sound when they're like really really deep in the shed and uh mm. hearing that muscular tenor sound uh from that period is uh it's very inspiring it's like yo he has been shedding <laughs> deep in the shed yo like no there's no no doubt about it because of like the sound is so strong and the sheets of sound and uh like hearing um and also the the acoustics how it was recorded um whatever room they were using uh that was that was it. <laughs> yeah. It's very distinct sonically from the other yeah. stuff. And I just feel like mm -hmm. it's just not, I don't know, I guess it's just not talked about as mm -hmm. much, you know, um, yeah. obviously like the different bases. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this thought, right. I was like, so I'm like, you know, listening to these, records and getting you know ready to talk to you about this album and had me going down the rabbit hole and listening to all the stuff of this particular band right mm -hmm. and i was like i feel like steve davis got george coleman a little bit it's not i mean jimmy garrison comes and it's just mm -hmm. like yeah <laughs> alchemy it's just like okay yeah. that's that was the thing to make this sort of like mystic brew if you will but like yeah i still i do have a like a sincere appreciation for oh, yeah. the, for what steve davis was doing oh definitely he he held it down on that recording and uh i feel that uh i feel one part of that particular song uh my that track uh my favorite things one part that is absolutely indispensable Mm. is is McCoy Tyner like oh, his playing man. on that it's just like that it would not sound the way it sounded without McCoy Tyner playing nobody was playing piano like that at all at that time if you got an imitator later on and put him in there it's just one of this like the the whole sonic uh landscape uh that made uh that melody just sit so well in the mix and 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 also within the performance. Um, all of that is created by what McCoy is playing. And uh uh I I express this a lot to to my students and and also to uh uh fellow peers of mine is that, that production is not something that just appeared when we started, you know having all these uh, uh, electronic ways of producing music. Yes. Production was done live through the the music musical uh, abilities of the musicians. Like McCoy, the way he's hitting the piano sets up a certain texture sonically. Yes. Uh, the density of the chords, the, um, the fourths, uh, moving the fourths in certain uh, directions, it creates a whole texture uh, that is very palpable. Um, if you were to sit down and mix the track, it's like because of his playing, that is why the sonically that recording is is the way it is.
say the same thing for the way that Elvin tuned his bass drum compared to the way that Roy Haynes tuned his bass drum. Yes. And when you hear Roy Haynes play with Coltrane, it's a whole other sound. Absolutely. <laughs> and the cymbals as well. In a, in a, in a Jimmy Garrison's bass, the muddiness and the, the amount of low end uh, in comparison to, say, Steve Davis or, or another bassist that Coltrane had in his group at any point in time, it's, it creates a certain sound that you can't really duplicate with any other musician. And it's just as palpable and just as uh, important to uh, the uh, the history and the and the um, uh, the legend that this record this particular recording has is just as integral as Jay Dilla is to Slum Village. It's like oh, <laughs> you know man. this yeah like it would not be that without without those particular musicians and I and I. I can't remember who, where I heard this, but um, there was another pianist that did another of favorite things with Coltrane. Really? Shortly after they, yeah, shortly after he did the take, Coltrane said, um, thank you very much, <laughs> and got McCoy Tyner. Oh, interesting. Is this McCoy's first recording with Train? I'm not going to really say that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Coltrane, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to look, he was looking for a certain sound to go along with the, the mystique of this melody. And in that instance was like, you know what? I think McCoy Tyner would be a better fit. This you is know, it. Yeah. Hearing, hearing, hearing him from another session or something, I wouldn't be surprised that what, that that was kind of like the pivotal moment that made McCoy the central <laughs> uh, man. Be yeah. Because let, let's get into that because the, mm -hmm. the, to your point, and I think that's such a dope point that you're making in terms of production and the mm -hmm. way that mm -hmm. people, when they even hear the word, their mm -hmm. mind automatically goes to electronics, but mm -hmm. the production is, it's the it's the imagination it's mm -hmm. the, like you said the musicianship it's the it's the approach to the instrument it's the approach mm -hmm. to the arrangement yeah and with my favorite things the tune itself so we'll get to all of the tracks hopefully mm -hmm. but um so it's a rogers and hammerstein song it's from the film, which is like 19, 1965 or 1966, but the, the Broadway show, I think, was 1960 or so. And so mm -hmm. with Coltrane recording this in 1960, he's not recording a tried and true standard. This is sort mm -hmm. of like a, exactly. a, a newer pop tune in a way. Mm -hmm. And then there's this arrangement. Because if you listen to the Rodgers and Hammerstein version, by the time you hear like the form one time through, you know, you got it. It's like, oh, okay, this, mm -hmm. this is the form of the song. Exactly. With Train's version, and I've been listening to this version for 30-something uh, years, the mm -hmm. form is still mysterious to me. Like, no matter mm -hmm. how many times I try to figure out the form, and it's like in, mm -hmm. in my DNA, I know when it's going to the when it's going to go into that major 
thing, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. but I know it in my spirit. I know when it's coming, but like, I can't say that I particularly understand the form. And it seems like when McCoy solos, the form changes a little bit. So let's mm-hmm. just talk about yeah. like the arrangement itself and the form oh, yeah. of this song and the, the, the sort of, yeah, I, I just, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I want to get into yeah. that. Yeah, it's um I I really uh I I am re- I really admire the the way that they they arranged this song. Uh it's it's so interesting that you brought that up because um I I covered that song uh at a gig at Smoke uh, a few years ago and you know, that was my first time actually really transcribing it. Like I've been listening to it and getting the sound in my ear and you know, every now and then I'll pick up something from what Coltrane was playing, but to to transcribe the whole arrangement, that was the first time really t- paying attention to the actual form that they're playing. And uh, I noticed that the minor sound was designated for when Coltrane was playing the melody. Um, and the release is the, the major sound, right? Yeah. And then when it gets, I think maybe after four times of playing the the melody, uh, they stay on the major, uh, and they they let McCoy Tyner just rip <laughs> all over Man. that, just, all over it, all up Ooh. in it, <laughs> just incredible thick these thick voicings. Uh, the piano sounded like it's about to explode. Tyner um, myself in Brazil. Wow. To hear that sound right next to me. Like I played with McCoy Tyner in like a big band setting before that, but to play with him within his quartet um, in, in Brazil, um, that that was an incredible trip, man, because like I was hearing that sound right <laughs> on the stage, like, <laughs> and it just, it sounds like the piano is about to explode. Oh, and, uh, God, you know, it's just it's an incredible energy that he would stir up from from playing. And, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> one thing that's very apparent with playing with McCoy is like, you better get off the stage. You better you better get in and get out very, very, very uh, efficiently. You know, make your yeah. statement heard <laughs> because he's already heard everything that could be done on every single tune through Coltrane, like, you're not going to play anything that's going to be more impressive. So after about two choruses, it's time to get out. <laughs> no matter what, I don't care where you are in your solo. Right, I right. I don't care if you, it's like, eh, I could just, nope, just <laughs> get off the stage. <laughs> he you already, he's heard everything that can be done. There's no way you're going to, you know, like, that's, that's one thing that's very apparent with the, uh, with McCoy, um, and uh, yeah, so you, you you got that major sound, 
McCoy's riffing it, and then uh, the way that Coltrane grabs back into the uh, into the center of the of the picture, um, mm. that's that's like probably the highest climax I I feel in the whole piece, um, and uh, it's it, the switch to minor and major is something that I didn't even notice, and it's because it's like I knew something was different was happening, but I really noticed it until my later years because McCoy had a a, a systematic way of voicing uh, Major in a way that made it less happy. <laughs> yes, yeah. keep going. Mm -hmm. It's like the the choice of intervals, the voicings, make it made it it added more grit to the major than a uh, regular pianist. <laughs> yes. You know, that's that's where you get into the production type of thing. It's like, you know, like the choices that were made um, on their instruments with their musical skill, um, the choice by Coltrane to say, you know what? I'm going to use McCoy face. <laughs> exactly. You know how, it's such a pivotal moment. And it's like, that's that's a producer mindset. Absolutely. Coach, the person who was playing before probably did an incredible job, but it wasn't right for the sound that was in his mind. Exactly. Um, so, it, you know, those choices are made, um, I feel, uh, instinctively. I, I feel like it comes from years of, uh, of hearing different uh, situations, different... Um, textures uh and also from being in the studio a whole lot and the musicians back then were in the studio all the time right <laughs> we're recording so much so much more than we are now yes um, yes and it's like you know they so like this there's, there's so much time spent in that studio so it's like you you get you start to get this understanding of texture and uh not just being on your instrument and just thinking of playing everything right, but how you play it and the texture that you want to get across uh, through the speakers in somebody's car or, you know, or even in the, in the dance club or even yeah. at, in the stereo in your living room. Yeah. It's like when you start thinking that way, that's a producer mindset. And I think that's a total producer move that, that Coltrane made to, to pick McCoy Tyner for that. I, I think you I think you are so 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 spot on with that. McCoy really mm. is the such the glue mm -hmm. of that. I mean, of course, Elvin, there's no drummer who could have brought it to that spiritual height as well mm -hmm. other yeah. than Elvin. And then mm -hmm. incredible, mysterious, passionate, haunting thing that Coltrane has going on. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's really interesting yeah. for me with Coltrane as it pertains to his reworks of certain songs, because mm -hmm. you can tell that he really pays attention to the lyrics as well. That that would be yeah. my guess, mm -hmm. is that he really mm -hmm. internalizes the lyrics. And one thing yeah. I really appreciate about this from a production standpoint, like you're talking about, that I appreciate mm -hmm. about this song is that he doesn't quote that piece, the 
the when the dog bites the 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 and he doesn't get to that until i mean that's how he closes yeah, it it's he like closes the whole piece the whole yeah. thing with just right. that one <laughs> exactly it's like it doesn't it doesn't that's come some around stuff. That's, that's some, some it's, yes stuff. i mean it's so mm -hmm. modern it's so mm -hmm. i think of you brought up dilla i feel like that's something mm -hmm. that a producer like that would do where it's like mm -hmm. because if he had if he had introduced that part of the song in the cycles previous it it it's not it doesn't work yeah it, it has to it have doesn't this, work no mm -hmm. it has to have this this vampy modally it has to be exactly what it is to have that transcendent thing that is evoked in us when we hear it i feel like and then yeah. he's like and then i'm gonna drop this on you on the end mm -hmm. and then even yeah. how he plays that mm -hmm. how he how he, oh my gosh just how yeah. he plays that line mm -hmm. and i can just I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hearing it in my head right now yeah like when it is like Right. Like right there. Oh! It's like the, the way he plays it is so, it's just so subtle. Like he's not, he's not overstating at all. It's just exactly what's needed. He, let, he lets the, the ascension of the, the actual pitch create the uh the momentum back up rather than the volume he's not getting any louder he's just simply letting the notes in the their pitch create that that type of tension he's like oh. yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh. he just goes beast. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That is blowing my mind what you just brought up about yeah. building that tension without building the volume. How do we, uh, mm -hmm. without increasing yeah. rather the volume, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And how mm -hmm. do we do that in a way that's subtle? and intense and swelling mm -hmm. and yeah. he doesn't resolve it in this major you know he doesn't resolve it in the major it's like and mm -hmm. then and you think yeah. about it, the lyric is and then i don't feel so bad right which you would think is major and mm -hmm. then i don't feel so bad it's like <laughs> it's like no it's like there's beauty in the melancholy there's beauty mm -hmm. in, in this it's just masterful yeah. Perfectly performed, um, perfect choice of the musicians for the recording, and uh, yeah, it's it doesn't get any better than that. It really doesn't. And you and can't then, replicate yeah. it ever. <laughs> right? Yeah, and I mean, even though you know you your performance of it at Smoke, mm -hmm. I've seen it with David Bryant and Ben Williams mm -hmm. and DJ Strickland. Mm -hmm. It is it is 
Well, I, I have to tell you, and and I, I do mm -hmm. want to get into this too, but mm -hmm. we'll we'll um we'll talk about. I guess I don't know. Should we go into the next track, or should we talk about the soprano saxophone? Because I feel like let's talk about soprano. Yeah, I love. That. Yeah, because because you know when I I was just thinking about hearing you do it at Smoke, and then I was saying, well, first of all, outside of Train, you are my favorite soprano saxophone player. Oh wow! Um, Thank you so much. I could talk to a lot of people about Coltrane, but mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people I would want to talk to about Coltrane on soprano. Mm -hmm. And you're yeah. you're you're at the top of my list with that because oh, um, thank you. you you're you're literally my favorite soprano living soprano player for sure. And thank so, you so much. So how popular was the soprano itself when Train did this uh, this record? Because I know he was a big fan of Johnny Hodges, but even Johnny Hodges mm -hmm. I think, by the nineteen the mid forties had stopped playing soprano altogether. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. so. So, how how yeah. popular was this instrument at the time of my favorite things to your to your knowledge? Yeah, it's the that instrument is so it is so um, it's like it it takes an incredible player to to really bring it into the forefront. So you had mm -hmm. Bache. Mm -hmm. Bache is the first person to really bring that instrument to the forefront because the beginning of jazz is synonymous with the uh the, the really beginning of the saxophone in in terms of popular music uh and actually finding a place because the saxophone was banned in china it was banned in russia um really it was made at yeah it was made as a military band instrument uh a woodwind that would be loud enough to to carry uh you know, in, within a, a military band. Uh, a lot of Adolf Sachs's inventions were for that purpose, to be heard, to be heard loudly and be played as easily as possible. Um, he made many inventions. He made an invention that led to the sousaphone, the one that's wrapped, the tube mm -hmm. that's wrapped around the person. Yeah. That's because of Adolf Sachs. The, the modern bass clarinet, um, the patent for that, came from Adolf Sachs. He improved on the Bassett, which many clarinet uh, inventors were trying to make this low instrument. He made it so that it, you can actually hear it and project it. That's why it looks like a saxophone with all the extremities and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Adolf Sachs was such a great inventor that people were hating on him in the worst way. There were three assassination attempts on him. <gasps> yeah <laughs> so like oh yeah okay. and the his uh his really the 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 claim to fame was of course with the saxophone and the family of the saxophones and you know it, it made its way into uh military bands in america and uh then you had the you know the dixieland i don't want to even say that like the <laughs> the second line new orleans type stuff was going on, uh, the steamboat bands and all that stuff. And um, uh, the, the person of prominence during that time was Sidney Bechet. And he was an incredible clarinetist and soprano saxophonist. And that's where it really gained, the soprano saxophone gained its popularity. Uh, it's, it's just like the soprano of an opera. Like 
Mm. It is the star. It is going to be the star of the show, no matter yes. what. Yes. <laughs> um, so you better be strong on it, right? So um, Sidney Bechet, the lineage goes to Johnny Hodges. Johnny Hodges was a protege of uh, Sidney Bechet. He studied the hell out of Sidney Bechet, followed him around, uh, got all kinds of knowledge from him. Uh, so that that uh, incredible vibrato that Johnny, Johnny Hodges has, that comes in lineage from Sidney Bechet. Um, Johnny makes uh, a switch to, to alto as his main instrument, and that becomes like the main voice, especially on uh, those Strayhorn Ellington songs. You, it's like there's nobody who could play those melodies the way that Johnny Hodges did. Man. The way that he was scooping to the notes and the, the vibrato and everything, uh, that was just, it would just really stick out in the bands, like the opera singer um the soprano and uh uh and then you had people learning from johnny hodgins such as john coltrane he's you know john coltrane was on alto he you know he would emulate both charlie parker and johnny hodgins right and uh, uh you know that he was in the navy in a military band of some sorts <laughs> and uh uh you know he Switch the tenor at at some point, and um, uh, I remember uh, reading in the Miles Davis autobiography that uh, that Miles gave uh, John Coltrane a, a soprano saxophone. That's right. Yeah, a, it was like a, a going away present. I think um, Train was maybe uh, involved with a lot of drugs at that time and wasn't really reliable. Yeah, and they parted ways, and that was one of the presents. That was a present that he gave uh, yeah. John Coltrane. That I think from like an antique dealer or something like that. It was it was some kind yeah. of real kind of slick. Uh, yeah, it was a piece. dope. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Selmer, and it had like a very special special spatula. Spatula is the the mechanism that we use to uh, hit the lower notes. Uh, the spatula system looked very uh unique compared to other spatula systems so uh i uh uh one of the most iconic pictures of them is on the on that impulse record um ascension mm -hmm. on the cover is him with a soprano saxophone <laughs> he doesn't even play it on the on the record. <laughs> oh, you're right. Oh, that's right. It's like a grayish background, like a light background. It's yeah, very, like, like a, it's a white, like a white room or something. Yeah, exactly. It's just like this with the soprano. And I think he's got a cigarette in, in one of his hands. <laughs> it's so cool. It's such a dope photo. Uh, that picture right there made me want to play the soprano saxophone. You're so kidding bad. me. <laughs> I you're saw that picture. Me. I was like, I want a soprano saxophone. I want it now. <laughs> I used to, um, yo, I used to stare at pictures of soprano saxophones so much that it pissed off my dad. <laughs> really? Like, Why? Better stop, better stop having that pipe dream. You ain't going to get no soprano saxophone. You better deal with that alto saxophone. <laughs> oh, wow. Now... <laughs> Now, now, why did he feel that way? Did he think it was it was too uh, eccentric, or or what, what was the deal there? 
I think it's just in in terms of you know it's a yet another instrument to buy and stuff like that and um oh okay you know it's like I was just staring I would be staring at this thing so much you better stare and at that like, alto yeah exactly <laughs> you know how you put your eyes over there you, know, you put oh. your hands back back on something that actually exists <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but, uh you know, I think he was just messing with me because he actually did buy me a soprano saxophone towards the end of my middle school career. <laughs> oh, you um, had a soprano by middle school. Yeah, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Marcus. The, I it was like a Christmas present, and uh, the very first thing that I played on it was Afro Blue. <laughs> wow. It was a duet with my brother. You know, my brother got like maybe a new drum set or new cymbals or something. Yeah. And, you know, we played, uh, I had a, it was a LA sax. It was a black soprano. I still have it actually. Oh my gosh. Yes, please. I need to see this. Look at this. Yeah, this is, this is the same exact instrument. Um, I just have it sitting up there because this was the answer to my pipe dream. It was just, Oh my goodness. My pop just, you know, got it for me and uh, see it's L.A. Sax. L.A. Sax, yep. That's the same brand that uh, made the presidential sax for Clinton. Really? Uh, with the flag and everything on it. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Uh-huh. So I had, a, I had a white tenor and it was an L.A. Sax, too. I called it Marshall. And, uh, you know, uh, President Clinton visited our school um, he visited Miami and he was in Coral Gables and we were playing for uh, a function that he was uh, attending and he came and shook all of her hands and he had an extended conversation with me. Everybody was jealous about, you know, like, oh, I see you got an L.A. sax. Oh, I, my oh, God. I have an L.A. sax, too, the presidential model. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like everybody else, he was like, hi. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, that was very fun. And um, you know, but yeah, LA Sax, that's the the company that made makes this horn. Mm -hmm. It's um I don't think they're in business anymore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is a this this is something I want to keep because I was extra extra happy. You couldn't tell me anything <laughs> once I got a soprano saxophone. <laughs> I played everything on it. I tried to learn everything. I learned on the alto on this thing. Um, oh my goodness! Time. And this is my current uh, soprano. Uh, oh, Yanagasawa S nine hundred one, and it's silver plated. It's just an incredible instrument, and I have the tilted, um, tilted uh, neck. This, yeah, this is my new baby, and um, uh -huh. yeah, it's it's never really failed me. Uh, uh, I played like another soprano um for a little bit uh and then went back to this one because it's just the silver silver is a great metal uh it it resonates more than any other metal um that they use for saxophones oh, or okay any kind of brass instrument it's okay. so the silver silver plate i feel is better than solid silver they had a, a choice for solid silver yeah um but there's something about brass you know you gotta have that brass in there Great sounding instrument. Um, I love the, I love the, it sounds like a kid. It sounds like, <laughs> like a, um, like a, a child 
a wise child. <laughs> yeah. So let, and, uh, let's get into into Coltrane's mm-hmm. sound on soprano because mm-hmm. his sound on soprano is yeah. very unique. It doesn't yeah, sound it like anybody else that I can think yeah. of. And and most when I think of so, so the soprano, especially in in modern times, I, I it, there's like a butteriness. There's a there's a, there's a buttery tone or a buttery sound to it or something like that but train is not buttery on on soprano it's it's very it's kind of like the the quality of like maybe a child having a, a stuffy nose and they have that very cute nasally voice <laughs> type of thing yeah like uh i feel he has that type of sound and then uh and a lot of times i feel with the soprano saxophone he's imitating um, sonically, it, it sounds like he's imitating a snake, a snake charmer, the way oh, that he approaches yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And you can, you can definitely hear it on that recording uh, of Shim Shim Cherie. Mm-hmm. Like the way that he approaches the the low end of the soprano um, in order to play, because it feels weird with the isolation. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. But like the the quality that he got in the low register um, was very harsh. Like he would um instead of um smoothing it out with like kind of like a subtone type of thing, he would play it uh full on and embrace the um how much louder the bottom of the horn is than the top. Um something like that. Mm-hmm. And um uh when he got down to the low register. Uh, you know, it it had a very, um, I, I think I have a feeling that he would have the mics at the bottom of the horn. So it would be like extra loud and uh, extra nasally, um, the way that it was captured and also the way that he was playing it. And blow down into the horn as if it's like an English horn or or uh, an oboe. Ah. And, uh, I've noticed that most of my favorite saxophonists uh, play the soprano like that. Um, like you got uh, Branch Marsalis who approaches the the soprano that way too, and uh, Wayne Shorter blows down into the instrument a whole lot too. Um, then you have people like Kenny G who has like like he holds the instrument straight out, straight out, kind of like, like blue. <laughs> right, exactly. So that brightens the sound like. Um, because um, when you're blowing down, down into the instrument, the air is going, is traveling like this, and it um, it hits the far edge and goes down along this side of the horn. So it's not interrupted that much from the, the keys that are moving. It makes a more round, fat sound, um, uh, as opposed to when you're you're playing like this, Mm-hmm. It's going straight in, and if you have a straight neck, it's going even more straight in. Right. So it's straight in, and it's just right against the fingerboard, so it gets interrupted and stuff. It's not as warm and fat sounding, you know. Um, oh, interesting. Postures everything with horns. <laughs> you know, and and I'll be honest with you. You know, my my mm-hmm. ignorance. I thought that they mm-hmm. were holding the horn like this to try to look slick or something like that like to try you know like especially the the more smooth 
leaning artists. Yeah. You know, they'd have yeah. the horn tilted up to the to the sky and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, so and I that, just thought it was you're probably right about that. You're probably right about them <laughs> trying to look slick. But the uh, but the people who are cognizant about posture, they, sure. I, they tend to hold it down. Yeah, and you know, most people would not. I don't think hear that like if someone never heard train on soprano and they heard you describe it as nasal which i think is spot on that would probably mm-hmm. sound like a turnoff to someone well i don't want to hear someone on a someone sound nasally but mm-hmm. it works so well yeah. and i think mm-hmm. to your point about uh it sounding like a snake charmer he was hanging out with ravi shankar and um getting really into uh, more eastern uh, approaches to music and Eastern sounds and compositions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how that probably influenced his, his sound or his tone in particular on some mm-hmm. piano as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, that is influenced from the East, um, that, uh, helped form his sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really love how he, um, utilizes that. That's some, that's some, that's some producer stuff right there too. You no, know, the type of sound he wanted to get out of that horn, um, you know, is very, is very different than Bechet, very different than Johnny Hodges. Um, you know, that was a very distinct thing, and it's it's like, it, it's so weird how the resurgence of the popularity of the instrument comes along with the strong player. It's like you know, John Coltrane. Steve Lacey, <laughs> the shade, Johnny Hodges, you know, like, yeah, it, it always comes, you know, then there's Wayne Shorter, then Marcus got, Strickland. Uh, oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, since we named people, you know. Thank you so much. <laughs> and it's like, uh, it, it's it, because there's this, you know, there's during that whole time, there's other people playing the soprano, but it ain't really hitting the mark. <laughs> exactly. A lot of I feel a lot of saxophonists um they they see the soprano as oh this is just a tenor up an octave and it's like no it's a because totally it's the same instrument. key right same key up up right up an octave mm-hmm. um but it's like the the change in the size of the bore the change in um it it changes um uh, how minute a movement it takes to make it out of tune because everything oh. is more dire because everything's smaller. Okay, okay. <laughs> so you have a tight embouchure in order to make that thing work. Whereas with tenor, you can have a more loose embouchure and you know there's more give. Uh it's it's a different instrument. And even with mm-hmm. train, how sometimes the tuning is 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 people can't see what this movement I'm doing on the show, but it, it yeah, has yeah. A, a little bit of malleability. Yeah, there's a lot of flexibility. There's some in the, flexibility in the there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's a uh, that's a, that's he kind of embraced that that quality of the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you have people like Branford who who can play spot on spot on this pitch right yes and uh, i took uh, a few lessons with him on soprano saxophone and that that really um brought my brought my sound up to to the par with, with what it is today because of my studies with branford because he studied the shit out of soprano um from 
from Bechet to now, like he really understands the the instrument. Uh, he's gorgeous. And the, he's absolutely yeah. gorgeous on soprano. Oh my God, it's it's incredible. And uh, uh, man, uh, <laughs> I remember one day <laughs> I heard that uh, Kanye hired uh, Kenny G to play for uh, uh, what's his <laughs> wife's name? Uh, oh, Kardashian. Uh huh. To play for her on Valentine's Day, and yes. um, you know, and uh, somebody was talking to me about it, and I was like, "See, now if I was Kanye, with the knowledge that I have, I would have done this." And you know, they they're like, "Okay, you're gonna just like hire like a dope, you know, somebody that you like." He's like, "Not only that, I would hire both Kenny G and Brad Marcel." <laughs> I would have her come into the room blindfolded <laughs> <laughs> and have her listen to both of them play separate times, right? Right. And ask her which one she liked the best. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> okay, and then depending on who she chose, what would that what would that mean? So that would mean chose... either divorce or <laughs> live, live happily <laughs> after after. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, oh. I can imagine a whole lot of stuff. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I am, oh, man, that is hilarious. And honestly, something I probably would do too. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're going left and you should be going right, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not trusting, I'm not trusting your judgment on much of anything anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm picking colleges. No, I'm doing it all myself. <laughs> clearly, you don't have judgment on anything. Exactly. It's like, but, yo, um, you're not hearing things right. You ain't hearing things right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, that is hilarious. But uh, um, yeah, so, hearing so, and uh -huh. oh, oh, and he hearing. Um, uh, I'm sorry for deviating so much from the the, the topic, but like no. hearing those those Sting records with Bradford playing soprano on him. Yeah, man. it's like I can't imagine anybody else's sound with that group at all. Yeah, it's like, for sure. That made the record <laughs> having totally. that particular soprano sound. You know? Oh man, yeah. I think the the first time I heard Branford on soprano that I that's really sticking out in my mind. I was about mm -hmm. twelve, and it was on the Mo Better Blues soundtrack. And it was oh, crazy because yeah. mm -hmm. I was just watching Mo Better Blues yesterday, and mm -hmm. I'm listening to. Um, I was never a big fan of the Harlem Blues track. Um, even mm -hmm. when I had yeah. the soundtrack, I would always kind of skip that one. And last yeah. night, and, and that's the funny the thing. solo. Man, listen. That, that solo. That's one of my favorite. It gives me chills every time I hear it. It's so gorgeous. And that that yeah. was, you took the words out of my mouth. I zeroed <laughs> on that solo, man. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, this, mm -hmm. this is the magic mm -hmm. right here. This is really, it's yeah. so absolutely gorgeous. And the, like, just like hearing the soprano sax of Coltrane along with McCoy is the sound of itself. Kenny Kirkland and Bradford. That's a vibe. It's a thing. <laughs> That's like, it's a vibe. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the producer stuff. It's just like, 
Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. so let's talk. Let's get back to the record because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, to, to your point, no, no. This is what this is what mm-hmm. this is what this show is about. This is exactly mm-hmm. what I want. I want us to go yeah. where it feels good. I'm having a great time. Um, but when <laughs> you brought you. up the pairing and the vibe mm-hmm. of it, I was thinking mm-hmm. about the My Favorite Things album and the track that follows which is every time we say goodbye because it's mm-hmm. the, it's the because after that he switches to tenor for the for the last two tracks so mm-hmm. we have an album it's got four tracks and on side A we have my favorite things and every time we say goodbye on soprano and then we flip mm-hmm. it over we've got summertime and but not for me on and yeah. he's on tenor with every time we say goodbye so we go from mm-hmm. this intense 13 minute and 46 second like magnum opus mm-hmm. with my favorite things. And then with yeah. every time we say goodbye, I know for me, it feels like there's this, there's a, a, a second release. There's just like, mm-hmm. this, oof, yeah, you know, definitely. and then I love yeah. how when, you know, McCoy Tyner's solo comes in, then they, you know, it switches to uh, like a double time thing. There's oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Something about, trains band in that tempo range for me that mm-hmm. is i mean i love impressions i love i love you know the all the like really burnout stuff and when they're mm-hmm. going yeah. stuff, there's something mm-hmm. about right up in oh, yeah. there they get right up in that that's that pocket you know like yeah. right at that tempo it's a it's a very distinct way that they they swing at that tempo it is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, so yeah. it's not just me. Because I'm like, there is something mm-hmm. about that tempo. Another tune that I love, it's funny because it's from this Atlantic era as well. Maybe mm-hmm. a sl- maybe slightly faster, but uh, body and soul. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The way they yeah. feel, right? It's just something about that mm-hmm. tempo. They, they, the yeah. swing is yeah. incomparable. <laughs> Yeah, they, you know, I, that's an incredible, that was an incredible choice. His, his choice of Elvin, his choice of McCoy. And, um, and you know, Steve, Steve is dope, but I got to say, Jimmy was like, oh, <laughs> that was man. like the punctuation, just like, woo. Man. <laughs> Everything it's... crystallized once he. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so talk to me about that section on um every time we say goodbye a lot of what coltrane is celebrated for is his harmonic uh his harmonic complexity um uh the chops that he had um but it really is the the use of it the you know we get to the production at that point it's like he used it in choice places. It wasn't all over the song that he did that. Right. Towards the end, he they towards the end of the 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 section, they add those changes and it adds that little push and it also kind of like codifies or uh identifies that this sound is being put on top of this standard. Yes, um, yes. And uh in McCoy, um mm. He he just his his technique his uh, his his agility uh, 
in any situation, whether it be a ballad, or high tempo, uh, or like a medium, like uh, kind of like that Elvenish uh, mixture between Latin and and swinging, mm-hmm, <laughs> like a, like mm-hmm. a Latin beat and swing that Elvin type stuff. Um, like uh, on, uh, you know what tune that reminds me of? I think of uh, uh, Mr. Knight. Oh, yeah, Elvin, yeah. You know, with that kind definitely. of, uh, yeah, that kind exactly. of rhythm that you're speaking of. But go ahead. Yeah, it's like they, they with, with all these uh, ingredients, these things that require actual musical skill, mm-hmm. instead of just pushing a button, <laughs> like they, you have to have like certain musical uh, knowledge and uh, uh, theory uh, skill and uh, feeling in order to achieve these things, uh, but these things added to the production. It it actually made that recording sound so special. It made the group sound special. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is how you create a signature sound. Is that mm-hmm. you pay attention to the small things, the details, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, it's not necessarily um, slathering everything um, novel all over the whole performance. It's just that little tiny section that brings uh, it, it. It actually makes it more pronounced to do it in in a very choice type of situation rather than slather the whole thing with that sound. So like it, I I really uh, appreciate the forward thinking the the in the moment thinking the pure genius of all of these guys is just yeah. um, the way it was captured whoever was recording them knew what the hell they were doing that too that <laughs> um, too I wanted to just to just go back to McCoy for a second because mm-hmm. he does this thing like and he does this a lot with Train but these are in um, representative of their earlier work together so it's it's mm-hmm. interesting to see uh some sort of uh artistic patterns that he was laying down like ha- like some things that would be foundational to the group and one of the mm-hmm. things is that when he solos like on every time we say goodbye he plays mm-hmm. that dum, 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 mm-hmm. while he's playing yeah. all this like gorgeous mm-hmm. stuff underneath but he yes. but sometimes he'll just lay on one note. One note, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I I was um remarking about how like Marvin Gaye does that on um the I Want You album where he'll there's mm-hmm. certain times where he well he'll just take a singular note and mm-hmm. just lay all this other shit underneath it. And mm-hmm. so each yeah. time you play it, that one note has a different color every time. And yeah. I feel like McCoy Tyner is one of the one of the most uh, shining examples of how you can just lay on a note. Exactly. Yeah, what's yeah. happening around that note harmonically, yes. as you say, how harmonically mm-hmm. ingenious, not just Train, but that mm-hmm. whole band, Jimmy. Yes. All definitely. of them yeah. uh, were so harmonically just on another planet. That yeah. just, and, and he, he does that in my favorite things too, where there's that one yes. note that he that he'll do that around. You were gonna say something. Yeah. And it, it, this is, you know, stuff like this uh, really, uh, it reminds, it, it, I, I can see the connection between stuff like that and also uh, sample choices and a beat. Mm. Um, 
you know, like there'll be a Dilla song where there's this one note <laughs> going, uh, being played over and over again, or a melody that's being played over again. And there's different harmony underneath each time. Um, and it shows that um, there's a, uh, it shows the continuity between the, and, and the relativity between each of those chords. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can uh, stay in one key or stay on in one note while the chords are moving uh, in very different directions. Wayne Shorter is another composer who who used that technique a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that song Angola, um, he's using like a a, a concert B flat, um, probably melodic minor uh, scale within the melody. But the changes are going everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> So we did, and actually McCoy tied I was gonna that. say, and and he's got the right McCoy and Tony. Sure. Ooh, that's that a nice part. Oh my god! Uh, yeah. Talk about a sound they created. Man, but um, speaking of Angola, there's this part mm-hmm. on the alternate take. Oh yeah, where Ron? Oh my mm-hmm. gosh! There's this mm-hmm. part where they, they they're like they go back up into the swing real intensely. Uh-huh. Ron is playing yeah. some shit. Oh my god! Like I love. <laughs> I love the the recorded version, but the alternate mm-hmm. take has some little yeah. gems in there for me. But that, that's Definitely, one of my yeah. favorite. That's one of my those, favorite yeah. records. Those, yeah, first, those sure. alternates are incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I gotta I gotta revisit it to to check out that that part you're talking about. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, but uh, you know this this is uh I feel that you know like a lot of times when I talk about the connectivity between uh, jazz and hip hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, people from another culture seem confused <laughs> when I start mm-hmm. talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, the vamp, the whole concept of the vamp, uh, taking a very, very small piece of music uh, and, you know, the bass line of that vamp, the harmony of the vamp and the, the notes that are on top, it makes a, a whole universe and the repetition of it it makes the song, you know, it, mm-hmm. it makes the, uh, it, it becomes like, it almost becomes an interlude. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like a lot of hip hop artists, it's like when they, when they're looking for something that is quote unquote sampleable, like right. <laughs> sample worthy. Air quotes, yeah. A lot of times they go towards the vamp, like whatever's vamped in the song they go towards that yeah. or they or they make a vamp out of something that has th- all those qualities in it. It's got like a dope bass line, very melodic, and the the chords are uh, very active, but there's a melody like note just kind of sitting on top of it or like a, a certain key center that's sitting on top of it. 
a lot of sample worthy uh, moments in songs happen at these moments. So like, mm. you know, mm. now that you mentioned this particular part of uh, every time we say goodbye, I am dying to go to that particular part. Yeah. And make a beat. There you go. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's how I feel. Like when I when I'm listening to this stuff, same thing. I'm like, whoa, that's mm-hmm. that's nasty. That's yeah. A, yeah it's, it's, it's very, very loopable. But like in like you mm-hmm. said, in the most sophisticated of ways, because mm-hmm. in such a short thing, it embodies so much. It, it yeah. embodies all of the goodies. Mm-hmm. All yeah. of those little gems that you want, mm-hmm. you know, and and yeah. that takes that takes, like you said, a certain harmonic adeptness, a certain feel, a certain you know, mm-hmm. a certain uh, predilection for the right kind of melodies and all that kind of stuff. Like you said, it just yeah, it's it, there's so much of that in in this record and and with McCoy yeah. and in 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 particular the way he's able to. Um, because of the style of playing that he plays. And like you said, it feels it feels almost like ritualistic. It's like it's almost like it's predestined because, mm. uh, you know, the people that you have playing are on on a high level listening to each other and uh, choosing notes uh, according to what they're listening to and and also according to what they know harmonically and and rhythmically. And, um, you know, this is like the highest level of, of art. They're, they're composed. You realize they are really composing. It's all kind of like uh, what, what is called counterpoint, where uh, a melodic line in the bass with the melodic line on top, um, with the horn or maybe even the piano, just those lines together make a certain type of harmony. And there's like certain... Like if you were to analyze it, it would make different chords on every single beat or every single eighth note. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You could get different chords or, or different voicings on mm-hmm. every single one of them if you were to do an analysis. Mm. Stuff like that is being done on the fly at any Oof. given moment in a in a jazz performance. So like it's uh that's why you have people like Gary Bartz who say, look, improvisation is just like I can just throw something, you know, you know, like topple over. It's like, yeah, that was an improvisation. It's like we're composing instead of composers. We're composing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is a really important uh differentiation there. Wow. I never mm. I never really thought about it like that. Yeah. I never yeah. thought of it like that. But that's it that's absolutely right. Because I think even mm-hmm. the idea of improvising, which in and of itself is genius. Mm-hmm. Um, it is almost looked upon as something that dismissive, as, as, it, dismissive, <laughs> as if it takes mm-hmm. no skill, as if it as as mm-hmm. it takes no real understanding of harmony mm-hmm. or or you know mm-hmm. it, as if it takes no as if it does not take extreme intelligence to, mm-hmm. to do that. Exactly. You know, um, mm-hmm. in, in a similar way that, you know, I remember when uh, Serena Williams would say, they always talk about my strength, but they never talk about my strategy, you know? So, exactly. So, yeah. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think because improvisation is largely identified with Black folks, that there, mm-hmm. there, there's been an, a narrative that whittles it down to something that is innately in us, that, you know, we, we're, we, we just, mm-hmm. can, we, we can just do that. To some degree, exactly, yeah. there's some, there, mm-hmm. and, and to some degree, there's some truth to that. But like, 
when we start getting into these areas, I mean, you can't just pick up a horn and start improvising. You can't just sit at exactly. a piano and start improvising. So, um, yeah, the inter- the intellectual um, aspect of the of black people at large is always suppressed in analysis. I don't understand why. Well, I do understand why. Yes. But <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, you know, there's something to it. You know, like uh, you know, they'll say, "Oh, they can dance. Oh, they can uh, they can sing so well. Oh, man, they can like make things up." You know, but they they really shy away from the intellectual properties of these artists there you that go. is necessary to to create that art or even to to play basketball. You know, Michael Jordan is an incredible strategist, an incredible, there's incredible intelligence going into his, dis, that went into his decision-making on the court. Because you I know, think people, people shy don't... away from that part. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Because in mm-hmm. their mind, uh, these decisions are somewhat instinctual and, you know, they don't require any strategy or study or thought. And so I mm-hmm. think you make a great point. I mean, that what you said right there is like, is so quotable. It should be mm-hmm. like on a on a billboard somewhere about the suppression mm-hmm. you know, of, yes. of, of analysis. I think that's that's a brilliant uh, takeaway. Um, yes. And so when we flip the record now, train is on mm-hmm. tenor. And mm-hmm. I have to admit, summertime, I would be stuck on the first two tracks so bad. I would play my favorite things. And then every time we say mm-hmm. goodbye follows that. Mm-hmm. I could literally loop those two songs for like half a day and I might Mm -hmm. not even get to the B side, but, (laughs) but, but let's talk about summertime because again, Mm -hmm. this is another shining example of a really dope arrangement. Summertime has never Mm -hmm. been, I'm going to just keep it all the way. 100. The tune in and of itself has never, I don't really ever need to hear summertime i mean i do love sam cook's mm-hmm. version there are mm-hmm. very few versions where i'm like you know what i really dig that but by and yeah. large i don't really need to hear yeah. summertime you know shout out to gershwin and all but um but train mm-hmm. playing it yeah i i can make the time with that pet the pedal and the you know the harmony i'm just saying is it always comes back to the producer decisions it's like you know yeah. And you got Elvin doing that Latinish, Elvinish <laughs> swing type thing under it. It's like, you know, that's the sound. That's a it's a vibe. Like, you know, I wonder how those, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see how those choices came about. I would like to see if uh, if Train had any kind of instruction or if they just <laughs> did it. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. it, it took a long, it took a very long time for me to, uh, to learn, uh, actually from David Weiss, that um, the baseline on fall, um, Wayne oh. Shorter's fall. 
Yeah. Like all that stuff. That was written out. I thought that was Ron Carter. I thought oh. it, Ron Carter was like improvising that stuff. It, it is actually written down. Really? By Wayne Shorter, yeah. That that makes sense. <laughs> when you when we think about the composer who wrote, mm-hmm. when we think about Wayne, that that makes total mm-hmm. yeah. sense. Oh wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now yeah. I have to go back and I love that tune as well. Um, mm-hmm. From the Nefertiti album for anybody who's who's uh, mm-hmm. interested. Um, yeah. So we had the the pedal thing, and then McCoy's playing this kind of whole tone kind of thing going on um, mm-hmm. during, yeah. during the uh, the the I guess the chorus, and it's so it's so groyed. Yeah. It's so it's it just is. so it's so very groyed. It sounds like a pre- a preacher, you know. Yeah. Like the way that he uh, states the melody over songs like that, you know, like you, you could, uh, there's like certain uh, method to it, you know, when you listen to certain, uh, like certain records back to back, you're like, okay, on, on temples like this, they do that. And tunes like this, they do, you know, whenever there's a pedal, they go into this type of sound. And, you know, like there's all kinds of choices that are being made that made the signature of the group, of the recording of uh, that time. Mm. Uh, what what can I say? It's just, it's absolutely mind blowing um, yeah. what they were doing. And they were, they were just simply being themselves. That's right. <laughs> you know? Let's just try it this way, you know, but mm-hmm. the song and the album ending with, but not for me, we can tell mm-hmm. with the arrangement that this was something that Train was being intentional about because mm-hmm. we hear Train signature changes that mm-hmm. he was exploring. Another tune where there's an yeah. irony. There's a there's just there's such a there's such playfulness and humor and irony and seriousness and mm-hmm. and deep deep artistry going on there and 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 boldness to take a song yeah. like that and turn it into um, impressions or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And turn it into and something some, like that. And that's the, that's some very that's some very black stuff. Yes. Uh, to, to do, you know, like you see that in hip hop all the time. They'll take like a beautiful, like Phil Collins song or something and, and add like the hardest beat to it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They'll take like a little, little tiny sample of like a little piano melody that's very beautiful. And then I'll end up like the hardest track on the song, on the, on the record. It's true. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, Train was doing that in 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 many ways with his arrangements of uh, of these standards. You know, you know, yeah, he'd, he'd blackify it. Blackify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, yeah we just, uh, it's, it's really fun to hear him play those changes over these kind of songs, whether it's body and soul or, or this one, but not for me. That is such, mm-hmm. that is such a treat, man. Yeah. I mean, Marcus, I can't tell you what it, what it means to have sat and chilled and just unpacked this record oh yeah this is like a highlight for me so yeah it's a it's it's so great to to go over these these memories with with you um because out of all the people in the world just like you were just the perfect person to to really uh check out every detail of what's going on because you are so insightful um uh musically culturally uh I am so glad that that words about words about this uh, great art form uh, have been crafted by you. <laughs> I feel oh, you are wow. anointed. I feel that we need to multiply you in some way, kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you nothing but nothing but jelly standard <laughs> writing <laughs> need to be out there because we need the story told right. You know, it really needs to be told right and. Uh, so I'm, I'm just just chilling with you and our friendship, our our uh, kinship through the music, through the culture. Uh, it's just the perfect thing to do. <laughs> I would not want to spend, uh, you know, my hours listening uh, to music like this with any person than you uh, to talk about it because you're just you're just jelly. Like there's nobody like jelly. Nobody hears. Like Jelly does, you know. Wow, you got me little tears popping <laughs> up in the corners, man. That 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 is that that is the highest honor to hear that coming from someone whose whose ear, whose vision, whose compositional approach, whose musicianship, whose virtuosity. I respect to the degree that I do yours. So mm. that's just. That's just a great honor to hear you speak you. of me in such high regard. I, I do appreciate it. And I feel so blessed to have you uh, supporting me on this podcast and talking to me about this record that means so much to you, so mm-hmm. much to me. Yes. And um, just thank you so much, Marcus. Where can the people find you? MarcusStrickland.com or go to Instagram slash at instagram.com slash Marcus Strickland uh, with two S's. <laughs> yes, it's um, very important, y'all. Yeah, you'll be able to find links, all the links. I, w- I designed my website myself, so it's a very personal uh, uh, visual representation of what I'm doing at any given moment. So it's go to my site. It's it's actually a, a, a quite an experience to, to check out how I've laid out uh, visually what I'm hearing. <laughs> it is absolutely stunning. I recommend everybody check it out, support. We will see you next time. Milestones is a production of WBGO Studios. Production assistance by Corey Goldberg. Theme music by Riley Glasper. Listen on your smart speaker by saying, play Milestones, celebrating the culture. And if you're enjoying this content, please be sure to subscribe and review this episode on Apple Podcasts. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org 
studios.